This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the COVID-19 podcast. Because of the coronavirus, China's economy has shrunk for the first time since the late 1970s. It seems that things would be slowly improving, but will China's economy be able to pull through this crisis? And what are the long-term effects of COVID-19 on China's economy and the global economy? My name is Outi Luova, and I'm joined today by Mikael Matlin to discuss these questions. Mikael is a collegian researcher at the Turku Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. He has published on Chinese politics and economy and global economic governance, so he is the right person to explain us the economic impact of COVID-19. Welcome, Mikael. Thank you. Now, after the two-month lockdown of our university has ended, uh, it's great to do this interview face-to-face uh, with the required 1.5-meter safety distance. Mikael, how does it feel to be back at the university? <laughs> I think we have more than two meters here in between. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's uh, it's a bit odd. Uh, been away for more than two months, and it still seems like uh, I'm kind of a ghost walking on the corridors of an empty university here. So, my my hair has uh, been growing for the past few few weeks, and uh, but it's still good to be back here at the campus uh, area. So, if we go to the first question of today, so. Um, If we start with the Chinese economy, will the Chinese economy be able to pull through this crisis, Mikael? Well, if you look at the the most recent indicators, it certainly on the surface seems like um, like uh, they're bouncing back. Um, and it looks actually a little bit similar to what we saw after the global financial crisis in 2008. So the indicators uh, two months ago were, were pretty disastrous. We, we had a huge... Uh, Uh, dip in almost uh, all indicators, unprecedented in the case of China. <clears throat> and now uh, several indicators such as industrial production and, and exports are showing a, a rapid improvement. On the other hand, we ha- we have also um, other indicators that are still uh, looking pretty weak, uh, consumption, for example, imports, uh, to mention a few But uh, we have to remember that this is a pretty unique economic crisis as, as economic crises go. If we look back in history, uh, almost all previous economic or financial crises have started uh, from the financial system, from from a banking crisis, from the demand side, for example. To some extent, you could say that this is a combination of, of uh, uh, many previous crises. We're seeing um, elements that we have seen in in, uh, in, for example, the financial crisis taking shape today, but we have elements from other previous economic crises as well. So this is more like a huge external shock that is hitting economies around the globe. It's it's really global in nature. It's hitting the demand side and the supply side at the same time. The increase in, for example, unemployment in a number of countries is is just unprecedented. We we really have no no uh, sort of roadmap for how how to even navigate our way out of this, and it's it's global in nature uh, even. To a larger extent, I would say than than the global financial crisis, which was still um, centered very much then on on uh, on the U.S. on on the European economy and a couple of others, whereas China at the time actually uh, did fairly well. On top of that, I mean, just the nature of of the fact that we have um, we're dealing with a with a virus and and we don't exactly know the all all aspects of this virus. We don't know exactly how it uh, or we still don't know exactly how it, it um, 
affects people and, and uh, how you recover. Uh, we have a lot of uncertainties, medical uncertainties here, so we don't know how to reopen our economies. We're, we're trying now in, in several places to, to slowly get back to normal, but it's, it's likely to be a very bumpy road. So th- that's just as a small introduction, but we have to remember if you look at sort of China's economy now, it's in a very different state from Asian when the global financial crisis hit. At that time, I would say that uh, China's economy was on a fairly sound footing, actually. It was a fairly healthy economic uh, system that was in natural growth phase still. Uh, there was not much um, indebtedness. There was a lot of genuine demand for, for building infrastructure, for example, for satisfying on, on um, satisfied needs in the economy. But now the situation we have basically is, is, is very much uh, building on top of the kinds of, um, of policies, the kinds of um, measures that, that the Chinese government took um, to get back from the, from the heat that the global financial crisis was. So what, I'm, uh, what I mean is that we, we had then a, a massive um, uh, in infrastructure uh, stimulus um, package coming from the government in China that led to a huge... Um, building boom for a few years after after the financial crisis but we're living with the after effects of that so uh, and we see that in many in many ways so we had a lot of um, uh, investment we have had a lot of overinvestment a lot of also wasteful investments made at that time that increased indebtedness first at the local level so we had a lot of local financial or uh, local governments that that um, that uh, got very indebted uh, we have seen uh, corporate levels of debt go up uh, in, in China, also including uh, uh, debt uh, that is in, in dollar terms. And uh, I think what is actually most dramatic is that because the, um, the Chinese government was trying to shift from, um, from a more sort of export-oriented economy towards um, uh, an economy more relying on, on domestic demand, uh, we have had um, the consumer economy take off, which is in, in many ways good for, for China, but it's also led to a, a tremendous increase in indebtedness among consumers. So if you look at sort of 2008, uh, Chinese consumer debt was very low uh, on the order of 10% of GDP, and now it's up to a level of 55%, which is a tremendous rise in just, uh, just over one decade. And we have the effects of the trade war and increased protectionism. So, so China finds itself in, in a very different uh, situation in terms of the economy when confronting this, this crisis uh, compared to what the situation was when it confronted the global financial crisis. But, but what tools does China have now in this very complex situation to, to uh, take a new path and, and try to find a kind of way to recovery? That's exactly the, 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 the good question. I mean, uh, if you look at um, discussions now within policy uh, circles in China, economic policymakers, uh, right this week, for example, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not um, China should uh, introduce another massive round of economic stimulus. And yeah, that's seems, something we have been waiting for. But <laughs> we, we have so, been waiting so for it, and actually a lot of... Um, observers outside of China have been wondering what China is up to because we haven't uh, seen what many uh, would have expected, uh, another massive round of, of stimulus. So on the contrary, China seems to be really um, quite an exception now. Um, uh, if you look at um, 
other major economists, just about every other major economy has launched uh, massive packages of, of um, various economic stimulus measures, whether it's the US or, or Europe or uh, or, or Japan. Or, yeah, or maybe that's coming on, on Friday when the National People's Congress mm-hmm. starts its uh, session. Yeah, uh, they're going to be debating this, but uh, but it seems to me that um, uh, that the, there's some kind of um, growing consensus in, in um, China uh, that uh, the China uh, doesn't need or, or cannot um, afford to do exactly what it did um, in 2008, uh, mm-hmm. sort of put in uh, uh, 4,000 billion uh, renminbi, I think it was at the time, package of measures uh, that's even been talked about China not needing quantitative easing. And I think it goes very much back to to a realization that on the one hand we have this indebtedness that is now really on all levels. So whether it's uh, local governments, even the central governments getting um, more indebted, consumers are, are already fairly indebted for, uh, for an economy at the level of development of China's and a corporation. So there is a real risk now to, to add on debt on top of this, a risk in terms of, of what is going to happen to the, to the banking system, the, the financial system. There's probably going to already be an avalanche of, of, of de- bad debts coming as it is now uh, that's going to hit, be hitting the, the Chinese banking system. So, and, and there's just not, not uh, so many good projects uh, anymore. I mean, there's, there's less that debt can buy today than it did uh, 10, 15 years ago. So you need more and more debt just to produce less and less of economic growth. And China is facing a, a, a pretty bad demographic trends as well. Um, the working age population is, is, is shrink, shrinking. Uh, the population is aging fairly rapidly and so on. So what I'm saying is that it seems that um, the policymakers are more concerned now with uh, or, 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 they, or let's say that they are more confident that they actually can uh, keep this thing going um, and, and, um, and keep the economy on a fairly um, stable path without resorting to these kinds of extreme measures that other governments right, right now are taking or okay. that China was taking previously. Do you see here any, any window of opportunities for, for rethinking, for example, for, towards more environmental friendly uh, development or, or mm. taking more attention, pay more attention to the climate uh, crisis uh, discussions that we are having here in in uh, Europe what about China hmm. well as the saying goes don't don't let a good crisis go to waste um, uh, where very often we have let uh, good crisis <laughs> go to waste um, and arguably you could say that the uh, the last um, big crisis in in the economy the global financial crisis was to some extent uh, uh, wasted because uh, we didn't fix a lot of the structural problems in our economies and and um, this is not just China it's, it's um, it's it applies to 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 many other major economies as, as well so i certainly see um that this um coronavirus crisis has has the potential for for um, for us to make uh, structural changes to our economies and, and societies that otherwise would have been much much harder to to do so for example um as you mentioned uh, to to have more climate friendly um solutions to to many things how we organize societies now is the golden opportunity to, to do that, and and this I think is is the case also in, in China. So, more uh, or or less uh, extensive use of of, uh, of carbon, uh, less less traveling, less less um, activities that uh, are harmful to the to the environments. Some effects, if you look at the sort of micro level, um, of course, are fairly obvious. We've all been living through this now for the last uh, two months or so. So, um, 
increased teleworking opportunities. We, we have the infrastructure uh, in place for that. It's more been may, maybe um, a case of, of getting, um, getting sort of a, a change in, in, in thinking, for example, on, on the part of em- employers. And I can see that here, this is a big opportunity, especially in Asia, where employers typically have, have wanted to, to see their employees present. So we have all the, the technical facilities available for, for, um, for more um, use of teleworking. And, and um, this might be the, the impetus that uh, shows that it's, uh, it's possible and it's actually even productive to, to do that. And that, of course, would bring less work-related travel. Uh, we're certainly seeing more online shopping, uh, more buying of online groceries as well, online food deliveries and so on. We have all been seeing this. So within societies, I do see some hope for, for more sound solutions for, um, for how we organize our economies and societies and, and, and in China as well as, as, as elsewhere. Um, on the other hand... Um, what, what I think is more concerning then is that um, many things actually are pointing towards uh, problems ahead. And, and now I'm thinking more about the macro picture. So, so we're seeing uh, all of a sudden this, uh, this huge uh, avalanche of um, uh, state-led uh, efforts to, to um, get us back on track. But that um, seems to... To, to indicate that in the future we're going to see a much bigger role for the state in economies around the world. So in this respect, actually what China has already had or what China has been doing, China has, has been often called a, a state capitalist uh, system or, or, or the role of, of, of the state and the, 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 the party state in the economy is much bigger than what, what we are used to. But now this seems to kind of validate actually China's path and, and um, Thinking of the, the effectiveness or lack of eff- mm. efficiency in the state-owned companies in, in China. So. Yeah, it, it's really a, a something that I ponder quite, quite a lot, actually, um, the, because the uh, kind of the received wisdom uh, has been that um, one of the sort of the, the, the better, the, the things that the capitalism does better is, is better at allocating uh, scarce resources uh, to, to productive investments. So if you have a centrally led system, usually you're going to have misal- sort of misallocation of, of, uh, of, of capital. And, and, and that's what uh, China's sort of uh, state-owned enterprises have, have been um, criticized for as well in the past. And, and certainly this huge stimulus package that we saw after 2008 was, was, um, was very much uh, in the same way. And so, so you get a lot of... Um, uh, Wasteful investments, overinvestment, uh, a lot of overbuilding, uh, and um, and not to talk about depths. corruption <laughs> and corruption, of course. Yes, yeah. so we have a, a whole lot of um, issues that go with that. But now, if actually China's model is validated, and we're we're, we're starting to see uh, in slightly different ways, of course, so we're starting to see something similar happen also in in, in Europe and in in US. So if if uh, the state is backing up uh, companies, preventing them essentially from from failing, and again, this is understandable in the in, this, in the immediate crisis situation, but this is not very much what uh, Joseph Schumpeter, for example, had in mind. We don't have creative destruction that uh, many have seen as as a kind of essential element of uh, of well-working capitalists. So if the state uh, becomes a central part of how we allocate, how we choose winners among corporations. Uh, then the whole sort of uh, basic premise of what is the, the what was better about uh, 
or supposedly better about capitalism compared to a centrally uh, led uh, or a planned economic system. It's just not there anymore. So this is one uh, possible huge effect that we're going to, to see uh, that is going to play out in, in many different ways. Um, I, I see kind of uh, that a lot of what China has been doing is now gaining traction. So if the idea previously was that uh, uh, China is, is slowly going to, to look more, resemble more uh, the, 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 the Western societies and economies, then actually it's going the other way around. So in many ways, our economies are starting to resemble China's. And if we think about Europe, for example, we are um, seemingly throwing into the garbage bin a lot of the sacred uh, uh, ideas about, for example, not um, doing this kind of traditional um, sort of... Um, industrial policy where you're choosing national champions, national winners, and so on. A lot of that is, is, is driven actually by the competition coming from China and the pressure coming from China. So we have several big economies and, and, and fairly important uh, politicians now talking about actually we need a, a European or an EU industrial policy. We need to, to protect our uh, national champions, even central uh, uh, people within the EU are talking about this, and this is something we wouldn't have heard of in the past. Yes, uh, and now we are already in our second topic, that is the <laughs> global impact of the the um, COVID-19 crisis. So, um, um, but uh, if we look especially mm. on, at the uh, Nordic countries, mm. which are uh, small open European economies, so what kind of uh, impact do you see, especially here? I mean, this is not uh, exactly... About Asia, mm. the, the, the main topic of this podcast, but, but because this is a Nordic Asia podcast, so maybe our listeners are interested in this, mm. uh, in this specific question. Yeah, I think it's a very relevant question because it, it, it's really about uh, how the thinking about, about sort of how you should organize uh, the global economy is, is changing and changing fairly rapidly. The Nordic countries have arguably been some of the biggest winners of, of, of globalization, of open economies. I mean, these are small open economies that um, uh, are very reliant on, on trade, on, reliant on open borders uh, traditionally, and, and also uh, have benefited very, very much from it. So we have uh, a lot of uh, strong um, companies in the Nordic countries, uh, many of which are exporting 90-95% of their products uh, somewhere else. Uh, large parts of, 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 um, of, of the corporate sector in the Nordic countries is very reliant on, on having uh, workable uh, international trade. Now, I was just going to say here previously already that one of the, um, the sort of uh, potential effects that we, we are already seeing uh, some intimations of, of this COVID crisis is that uh, we have a kind of breakdown of uh, all kinds of um, multilateral systems and, and uh, systems of international cooperation. And of course, this is not something that, that COVID-19 brought to us. We, we, we were living, uh, or we have been living actually already at least since the global financial crisis with, with, a, with mm. a growing crisis of, of globalization and a crisis of uh, multilateral institutions that this is now exacerbating. Exactly. So, so are we witnessing the end of economic globalization as we... No, it now the uh, the old structures are 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 kind of grumbling down and and. Uh... It, it's a really important question, and and um, um, certainly it seems that at the very least, uh, sort of the consensus in favor of globalization has been breaking down 
in, in recent years. So you don't, it's not just populists in Europe or populists in the US or, or elsewhere. We have, we have populist politicians in, in, in many places today, but um, it's quite a, sort of where is the mainstream thinking uh, right now. And today it seems that it's, it's getting increasingly hard to find a, a vocal constituency, constituency that is in favor of, of globalization. In, 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 many, in many places you just can't find that. So why are we losing this, um, this uh, constituency in favor of globalization? It seems that globalization is, is not delivering, quote-unquote, for, for many people. I mean, it may be delivering for us as consumers, uh, but not necessarily as employees. Um, and, and that really is something that I think those who are, have been in favor of globalization should have been taking uh, much more seriously already a long time ago. So... Um, if the idea has been that sort of building on, on, on um, economic thinking that goes back centuries uh, to, to comparative advantages, I think it was David Ricardo who was it to, talked first about uh, comparative advantages, that everybody is, is, is better off uh, by, by us focusing on, on whatever um, we do best and, and, uh, and then we trade. Uh, this has been the, the underlying sort of thinking um, in favor also of, of uh, economic globalization. But it doesn't seem that way to a lot of people. It doesn't seem that it's uh, delivering uh, the fruits. Um, and, and so now we're getting uh, from, for example, um, important people in, in, the, in the U.S. government, we're getting a completely different kind of, of uh, message uh, where it does matter uh, where um, investments are made. Uh, investments have a, a nationality. It does matter uh, who's losing their job and who's, who's gaining their job. Um, so, so the the the, the context, the sort of the thinking uh, around this is, is changing very rapidly, and this is, of course, um, I mean, we can't we can't take globalization for 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 certain because we have seen, um, if you go back uh, just over a hundred years in time, we had a previous um, sort of a round of something that 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 uh, we didn't call necessarily globalization at the time. But, um, but we had um, a very highly integrated economy, actually, right up until the First World War, when the First World War broke yeah, that's out. That's an interesting comparison. <laughs> yeah, actually, if you look at the figures, I think what I saw recently was that, uh, quite strikingly, actually, um, the level of international trade uh, in recent years was, was finally up to where it was in 1930-1914, just on the eve of the First World War. Uh, which we sometimes forget that, that we were so highly integrated in, 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 in trade terms um, uh, as, as, as a world economy already then. And then we had this long interlude with two world wars and in between a, an economic depression that uh, led to, to uh, a long round of barriers to trade being raised, uh, national borders being tightened and so on. So we, we then had decades of... Uh, uh, essentially uh, national economies that then slowly were starting to reintegrate and it took us about a hundred years to get back to where we were and now it seems that uh, the, the themes that uh, for example Charles Kinderberger uh, famously talked about talked about the 1930s economic depression we're back to the same kinds of themes now uh, with barriers to trade being raised with protectionism with economic depression with uh, mass unemployment and, and, and so on so so the big question is, are we going to really um, be in for the long haul and decades of borders closing again and barriers uh, raised? And, and that, to get back to your question on, on the Nordic countries, uh, 
just cannot be very good for for uh, countries that have been comparative winners of, of globalization. So, if 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 we go to a, a world that in uh, or at, at its worst was was um, let's say in the late 30s and early 40s, um, really a kind of might makes right. Uh, whoever has the, the the power makes the rules. Then. Uh, I just don't see that this is a very good uh, thing for the Nordic countries. But you have to remember, of course, that um, we, we might, what we also might see here is, uh, is the emergence of, of major economic blocks. So we might have um, a US center block, we, we might have a, a China center block in, in, in Asia, for example, the countries that are tying themselves to China through the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And, and uh, here, actually, a major question is what what is going to happen to the EU, uh, and is that going to be able to maintain itself as as a major block? You know, there's a lot of uh, discontent also within the, the EU related to to the costs of, of keeping it together, especially the euro um, area, keeping that together. Yeah, with China knocking at our doors. <laughs> so, and I mean the Belt mm. and Road Initiative, it, it doesn't only only uh, stay around. China in the Asian region, but it, it stretches to to Europe, and you have it in in Africa, in Latin America, uh, mm. all over. So I mean, I think we can't talk about regional blocks either. But mm. there is there is a kind of emerging a new kind of way of of uh, building this economic cooperation uh, institutions. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think uh, anybody really um, has the answers, and I, I don't have a, a, an answer either to how the world is going to look ten years down the road. What seems um, fairly certain is that uh, the old uh, way of organizing things is is changing. We don't exactly know what's going to emerge from it, but but um, when we see all these uh, multilateral institutions having trouble, I mean, this is uh, these are kind of symptoms of of um, something underlying, some, some some something big going on. Um, Underneath, and um, um, you could say that it's kind of the the old um, order breaking down, and it's it's actually breaking down from many different directions. So it's not just that uh, we have China as a kind of a, a challenger coming and and uh, uh, wanting to introduce different kinds of, of um, ways of doing things and rules, but even the ones who set up the old system, in effect. Uh, so in particular, of course, the United States that was very integral to actually creating the kinds of institutions that we have now. Even, even the United States is kind of um, uh, questioning, uh, sometimes even undermining some of these uh, previous institutions. So we hear a lot of talk about uh, um, a rules-based international order, which is, of course, a, a kind of euphemism for, for uh, essentially the U.S.-led uh, or the U.S. vision of, of what international order should be like and, and what kind of rules should be governing it, but um, uh, but it, I mean we, we have this big question. Even though we've uh, it carries some some uh, sort of uh, baggage, this rules based international order. But but it it is quite important that we have some kind of, of uh, rules that uh, that govern. What are the Chinese kind of uh, principles mm. that that it wants to bring into these new institutions that are emerging? I would like to go back uh, one decade first uh, in time because uh, the the kind of consensus uh, among China watchers at at the time, just just under ten years ago, was that um, China is fairly content with the way things are. So yes, China uh, knows its what its own interests are and and it's pushing those actively in various settings, 
but it's it's not a very troublesome uh, partner to have in, in, in multilateral settings. So China is, 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 is constructive, China is, is working within the institutions, it, it, it has benefited very much from uh, the existing institutions. This, this is kind of the consensus view. So we're, we're in, a, in a quite new situation actually when we're now uh, seemingly realizing that uh, maybe China is not entirely content with these uh, rules. But um, uh, you have to be very discerning here because um, there was a recently actually a very good paper out by Alistair Ian Johnston uh, talking about um, different institutions and how China is is uh, is playing in different institutions. So so we can't say that China is is kind of uh, uh, challenging the whole order as such. Not at all. I mean, uh, it, it, it is a very um, uh, sophisticated uh, view, I think, coming from China, where uh, depending on on the setting, China has a different take, and sometimes it, it's supporting of this existing order. Sometimes I mean, China has benefited enormously from has, the existing it, it has, order. It has benefited enormously, and it tends to get uh, forgotten in China now. Also, exactly, <laughs> that it has benefited quite a lot. So, so within China, actually, there's um, there's a bit of um, uh, rewriting of of, of the. Uh, economic history of the reform period, uh, stressing more sort of uh, the role of the party, the role of the state, the role of political leaders, which of course have been important, but but we, we then tend to forget how much um, China had uh, a very favorable international situation uh, that allowed it actually to, to benefit. And, and uh, we had a tremendous uh, impact also of uh, foreign investors, for example, and, and, uh, and international trade that benefited China enormously. So, so one one question that a lot of people have been asking is, uh, so what are the Chinese rules? What what are the sort of the what is the alternative to, to um, what is China offering? Um, um, but it's it's been more sort of the as external observers have been trying to to come up with or trying to find sort of a Beijing consensus or uh, or something that that uh, that China does differently. It's it's not easy always to find. I mean, it, it's been often. Uh, in, in those uh, multilateral institutions where China's been more critical, it's, it's, uh, it's sometimes been easier to identify what China doesn't like uh, or what, is it, what is it it's trying to maybe undermine to some extent than what, it, what is the positive alternative, the positive uh, vision, the other vision that China is coming. We're starting to see that slowly merging with uh, uh, certain, um, for example, co- concrete... Um, and a concrete example would be how, how China is pushing for different kinds of, of um, uh, rules when it comes to, to standardization or, or exactly or yeah. I, 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 certainly in, in the in the area of, um, of, of sort of cyber and, and um, yeah, all of this facial recognition mm. and this, in these kinds of, of areas China is now very active uh, in pushing um, things that are, of course are beneficial for, for um, uh, itself and, and for its own uh, corporations. So we're seeing China be, become a much more active player uh, in setting these norms, uh, but I hesitate to say that we that this is sort of this is the vision that China is 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 a proponent of because it, it really is a, a very mixed picture, a very sort of uh, you have to take a very uh, sophisticated view on it uh, because it really depends very much on which institution we're talking about and which particular issues we're talking about. Okay, thank you, Mikael, for, for helping us to understand this very complex situation. Thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Goodbye. Until next time.
listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.